Esther, chapter number 1. We're going to read the whole chapter this morning, all of chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus who reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over an hundred and seven and twenty provinces, that in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even in hundred and fourscore days. And when these things were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both unto great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace, where were white, green, and blue hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings, and pillars of marble, and beds were of gold and silver, upon the pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. And they gave them drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance, according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law. None did compel, for so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. And Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagath, Zathar, and Carcass, and the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princess her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Then the king said to the wise men which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment. And the next unto him was Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Median, Media, which saw the king's face and which sat the first in the kingdom. What shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to law? because she hath not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. And Mamukin answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen hath not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes and to all the people that are in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. 
For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes, when it shall be reported. The king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day unto all the king's princes, which have heard of the deed of the queen, Thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before king Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. And when the king's I'm sorry. And when the king's decree, which he shall make, shall be published throughout all the empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to great and small. And the saying pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Mamukin. For he sent letters into all the king's provinces, into every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language that every man should bear rule in his own house, and that it should be published according to the language of every people. Amen. We'll end there at the end of verse number 22, the end of that first chapter. And let's seek the Lord in prayer together. Let's pray. Our Father, as we have our Bibles open here before us now, we pray again for the help of your Spirit in both the preaching and the hearing of your word. We pray that you would make this to be a profitable time to our souls. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Puritan John Flavel, or as I think some pronounced Flavel, said that God's providence is like a Hebrew word. It's best read backwards. How true that is. So often we get to the end of a confusing or difficult time of life and we're able with some spiritual foresight to look back on the events of the past few days, weeks, months, years, whatever the situation may be, to see and recognize that God's hand was in every detail. And we see it after the fact, we recognize what God has done. Well, the book of Esther is really that kind of story. A couple weeks ago, I preached an introductory message on the book of Esther. Uh, if you weren't here for that, I would encourage you to go listen to that because we're going to be in the book of Esther, um, not next Lord's Day, but two more Sundays as well. So I would encourage you to go listen to that introductory message because it is, uh, I hope, very helpful in, in our understanding of the whole but Esther is one of those books that you, you kind of need to know what's going to happen to understand better what's happening. And so it's one of those books that the second time and the third time and the fourth time you read it, you realize different pieces of the puzzle that fit together. It's like, oh, that's why that happened. Oh, that's what this is, this, why this is significant and, and et cetera. The characters and the drama of the book of Esther are woven together in a tremendous literary short story, a novella, if you will. And what God is showing the people of Israel 
is that he is actively in control of everything. God's power is on display in such a way that it is undeniable that the God of heaven is so intricately manipulating and controlling every single circumstances, every single circumstance, for his own glory and for the good and the best interest of his people. A couple of weeks ago when uh, we looked at this introduction to the book of Esther, I discussed with you the fact that uh, the name of God is never mentioned in the entire book. And we talked about the reason why that is. These were compromised Jews. The original recipients of this book would have been compromised, really paganized Jews. We looked at some detail that Mordecai and Esther, these two prominent characters in the book, and I hope came to understand that they are not the righteous and virtuous people that sometimes they're made out to be, at least not at the beginning of the story. They, Mordecai especially, was a compromiser of the first order, and Esther was as well. Very happy to live among pagans and work among pagans and blend in with the pagans. Um, one of the things I didn't mention in, in that message was Mordecai had no qualms with his cousin marrying a Gentile. It was against God's law. It was a violation of the law of God for a Jew to intermarry with a pagan. But he had no qualms with this. And Esther doesn't balk at it either. These are compromisers. And they weren't thinking of God. God was not in any of their thoughts. And therefore God was not on their lips. But yet, as I mentioned in that message several times, though they were not mindful of God, God was obviously mindful of them. Though they weren't thinking of the Lord, though they weren't factoring God into the equation, God was still mindful of his people, and he was still overseeing, ultimately, the promise of a Redeemer to come, if we really back out to a big picture view. But as this book opens in chapter 1, we're brought to the description of the most lavish display of earthly power imaginable. That's what we've read about in chapter 1 here. The king has put on a banquet that lasted for 180 days, six months. One continuous banquet feast at the palace, six months long. And over that period of six months, the various leaders and princes and governors and rulers of this province and that province, everybody that was anybody, over that six-month span of time, made their way to the palace, this, this summer palace of Ahasuerus. And there was feasting and revelry for six whole months. At the end of that six months, there's another seven-day feast for the commoners, for the regular folks. And we're brought face to face with this extravagant display of wealth and power. Ahasuerus was the most powerful man in the world, and there's no question to it. It's not just 
my opinion on it. You read the great historians of old, Herodotus and the rest, and you'll find that that's the claim. He was the most powerful man alive. But the point of this first chapter is to show and to teach us the pitiful and sad reality of earthly power. The pitiful and sad reality of earthly power. I want to ask you a few questions for you to think about in your own mind. The first question, what is it that you fear and keeps you awake at night? What is that earthly power that you're afraid of? If I could put it in these terms, what is that thing that you fear happening to yourself, happening to your family, happening to the nation, that would bring you almost to the place of not trusting the Lord anymore? Like you lose sleep over it. You worry about it. You're, you're so anxious about that thing. There's some scared to death of you know, a national or even a global economic collapse. Global food shortage. Worried to death about politics. Well, what if he gets elected? What if he gets elected? Maybe fear some disease. Whatever your problem. What is it that you would call your worst nightmare? What is it that you get anxious and worried about as you look into the future? Well, from a literary perspective, that's how the book of Esther starts. The book of Esther gives a description of the Jews' worst nightmare. The mighty King Ahasuerus, who had them under his thumb, the entire kingdom under his thumb. If he said it, it happened. If he said off with your head, your head was off. Now I ask you those questions, and the answer to those questions is going to be different for each of us, I guess. Some nuance of difference. Uh, ultimately. But Esther chapter 1 teaches us that whatever it is that's your answer to that question is ultimately weak and puny and just not worth your time worrying about. It's just not worth your time worrying about. I'm not making light or belittling anyone's fears. I'm just saying that by contrast, they're not worthy to be compared to the power of God. And so often that thing that we fear, that thing that keeps us so anxious, we in our mind, at least for a moment, pretend that it's bigger than God. But it's not. It's not bigger than God. So I want to dig deeper into chapter 1 here and see what the Lord would have for us from this chapter to explain that theme that I've just put before you. 
The first thing I would show you from chapter 1 is that earthly power puts on a good show. What I am preaching on this morning, the, the title of this message is The Reality of Earthly Power. If you're taking notes, I started to put on my notes the sad reality of earthly power or the pitiful nature of earthly power. But the reality of earthly power. And so I want you to see first that earthly power puts on a good show. You know, a 180-day feast is quite the show. That's quite the thing. It's quite the event to pull off. And besides that going on, Vashti's putting on her own show. The, the queen, she's, she's got a, a separate party for the women that is going on. And verse 5 tells us that after that 180 days, as I already mentioned, there's a whole other special feast for just the commoners. That 180-day feast was for all the nobles, the princes, the governors, the, the who's who of Persia came from all over. And now the last seven days, it's a, a party for everybody else. And they come in, and you read verse 6 of the description of what was there. Uh, this white, green, and blue hangings, and fastened with cords of linen, purple, silver, all this stuff going on. And then these commoners, everybody's drinking out of a golden cup. And all the cups are different. Cups that are the spoils of war from nation after nation after nation that Persia had conquered and brought all this into the treasury. And Ahasuerus is passing out the gold cups. And the display of power, the display of the greatness of King Ahasuerus is put on display for everybody to see. And for these commoners coming in, this would have been the most amazing thing that they had ever laid their eyes on. A fabulous spectacle. And then the king, to show his generosity, look at verse 8. This is something that you would read over um, and, and not really pause to consider. It says, And the drinking was according to the law. None did compel. Well, the, the, the custom, all the way up into the English monarchy, if you were in the presence of the king, especially if you were at a meal with the king, if the king went for his glass, well, you went for your glass. You didn't take a bite of food till the king took a bite of food. If the king stood up from the meal, you stood up from the meal. What the king did, you did. That was the custom. But Ahasuerus is saying, you know, I'm going to make a new law. And the new law is, there's no law. You can do what you want. If you want to drink yourself drunk, go for it. If you want to not drink, that's fine too. If you don't want to drink while I'm drinking, that's okay. And if you want to drink when I'm not drinking, that's okay. But it's to emphasize his authority over every minutia detail of their life. The, the law of the Medes and the Persians, this whole empire was ruled and governed over uh, according to this series of laws. And I think you're already well aware that many of them were silly and capricious. Like Darius made this goofy law that you can't ask of anything except for from him and got Daniel you know, thrown in the lion's den and Darius realized after the fact that was dumb. I shouldn't have done that, but I can't undo it. 
Right? But, so it's this series of, of laws, but it, it just highlights the absolute inflexible authority that the king had. I need to remind you of some more historical context as well, just to, to underscore what's going on in chapter 1 and this great show of power. If you remember from the last message, Ahasuerus, known in history as Xerxes, you'll, you'll find that name, it's the same guy, but Ahasuerus is the son of Darius. This is the Daniel and the lion's den Darius. And he's the grandson of Cyrus. Cyrus the Persian, who was the one that invaded Babylon the night Belteshazzar saw the handwriting on the wall and he was scared and his knees smote one against the other. That was that night that Babylon fell and that was Cyrus that came. Cyrus the Great, history calls him. And two things are going on during this 180-day feast. For one, Ahasuerus is trying to prove to his entire kingdom and to anybody that hears anything about this, I'm greater than my dad and even greater than my grandpa. History records Cyrus as the greatest of the Persian kings, and Ahasuerus desperately wanted his name to be among that list of the greats of world history. And so he puts on this lavish show. Most also see in verse, or I'm sorry, in chapter 1, what's going on with this 180-day feast of all these governors and rulers and all these people coming in, that it was also something of a war council. It, it was a planning and a preparation for what ultimately would be the Greco-Persian Wars. Because basically a year after chapter 1 happens, we have in history what's called the Battle of Salamis, where the Persians invaded Greece and sought to take over Greece. Darius had tried and failed. Cyrus had tried and failed. And Ahasuerus was bound and determined to do what his dad and grandpa couldn't do and establish a name for himself and broaden the empire. He was already from India to Ethiopia. So we're talking about Ethiopia, not the country of Ethiopia in Africa, but what we know today as Saudi Arabia. And all the way up, they had already conquered Israel. And so basically, west of Israel was um, the nation of Greece. And he was bound and determined to capture that as well. And so Ahasuerus was a great and mighty leader. He was an invincible force. And all these came from all over to see how invincible Ahasuerus actually was. It, this was something to behold. And Ahasuerus knew how to put on a good show. But we'll see in just a moment that it was really just a bunch of smoke and mirrors. He wasn't nearly as powerful as he thought he was. But earthly power is the same way, is it not? It puts on a good show. And it seems to be so domineering. It, it comes across as if it's so powerful and so important. And oh, we just bow and quake in fear at the world's power on display. I don't think there is a more clear and more relevant application of that today than the LGBTQ whatever movement. It is the dominant force in our culture right now. Dominant in such a way that major corporations organize their entire marketing strategy 
to cater to this small segment of our population. And they would tell you that it's not a small segment of our population, but it is. But they, they're seemingly so powerful that unless you cave, unless you agree with them, unless you affirm them, you're canceled. You're off. You're blacklisted forever. Some of you in your workplace have already had to deal with some of the ramifications of this movement. You, you, in your workplace, you already have some policies that have been put in place that are catering to this display of supposed power. Before the LGBTQ agenda, there was the climate change agenda, and that was a powerful force. It still is, but you don't hear as much about it as you do the others now. But it's still a force. You know, for 30 years, they've, been told, they've told us to do this, that, and the other thing to make the temperature go down. Well, the temperature hasn't gone down, but your taxes have gone up. And it's this machine of, of power that seemingly is so dominating. Maybe you fear something happening to your family or to your children. You look at these outside forces, and it seems as if they're so powerful, it's so inevitable that they're going to take over, it's so inevitable that they're going to conquer, and you fear it happening, you fear something happening to your health. You know, you watch enough YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram reels, you'll be scared to death, right? Because you, you find the right YouTube guy or the right TikTok guy, and there's another global pandemic coming, there's an economic collapse on the horizon. The dollar's going to be devalued. The Chinese are going to take over everything. This guy's going to get reelected, or this guy's going to run again, or whatever. GMO crops are going to kill us all. Big government, one world order, a housing market crash. And you can find the TikToker and the YouTuber and the Instagram reeler that is the champion of all these things. Normally trying to sell something, but that's beside the point. To scare you to death. Right, to scare you to death. But I've got news for you from Esther 1. Esther 1 teaches us, just calm down and trust the Lord. It's all going to be okay. Calm down and trust the Lord. It's going to be okay. If you're born again, what can any of these things do to you? What can any of them do to you? You might have a temporary, there might be tem temporary ramifications. But if I understand Romans 8, 35 to 39 correctly, I come away from those verses understanding that nothing is able to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That's what those verses teach me. And it doesn't matter if it's tribulation or distress or peril or persecution or whatever. It doesn't matter. It's a long list. It doesn't matter. Nothing is able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so therefore, let earthly power put
put on its show. Let it have its day. Let it, let it blow its smoke. Let it do its thing. Because we see, secondly, that earthly power really is just weak at its core. Earthly power is just weak at its core. The Holy Spirit is an excellent writer. I don't mean that in a flippant way. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Bible is a book like none other, but yet it is a piece of literature. It is a book. And as literature, the Holy Spirit masterfully has woven in various literary techniques to convey a story. And chapter 1 is a chapter that is filled with irony and satire. And the Holy Spirit has used that literary device or those literary devices to show us that earthly power is great as we might think it to be. And, and the powerful machine to just run over everything in its path as we might perceive it to be is really just weak and puny when you come right down to it. Verses 1 to 11 give us this massive display of power, perhaps to this point in human history, unmatched. The most powerful man on the planet, putting all of his wealth, all of his power on display for everybody to see, the pride and the arrogance of Ahasuerus is almost difficult to overstate. And all of his servants, all of his possessions are at his beck and call. Nothing is refused to the king. Until you come to verse 12. And man, what a shocker. Here's the ironic turn of events in the whole story. But the Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. What? That is impossible. Nobody refuses the king. Vashti was summoned. Seven what amount to be bodyguards go to fetch her. And she says, no, not coming. There's no point in speculating as to why she refused. The command may have been indecent, but the reality is beside the point. That that really is beside the point in the whole context. The point is that somebody publicly had the audacity to say no to the most powerful man in the world. And to make it worse, it was a woman. His own wife said, no, I'm not coming. This was not a secret argument between a man and wife behind closed doors. This wasn't just a, a private marital squabble that nobody else in the world would ever know about. This was a public display with a, a court full of his subjects. Sending in pomp and circumstances seven of his bodyguards to go and fetch the queen with her crown so that everybody could gaze on her beauty. And Ahasuerus is publicly humiliated 
because his wife says no. And verse 12 tells us what happens. Therefore, the king was very wroth, and his anger burned in him. He was furious. Maybe he had a right to be furious, but he was furious. Now, the law of the Medes and Persians required that Vashti be killed for her disobedience. And it was Ahasuerus' responsibility to give that command for Vashti to be slain. She had defied the law of the king. She had defied the commandment of the king. And make no mistake, it was a commandment, verse 12, but the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. Not request, command. So the law was that she should be killed. But we read verses 13 to 17. We're not going to reread that. But you see, one of Ahasuerus' wise men offered a solution, this man, Mamukin, that you read about. And the solution was that Vashti be stripped of her title as queen. She could no longer be queen. Now here's part of the irony. She didn't cease to become his wife. She wasn't cast into a dungeon. She remained his wife. She remained as part of his harem. If you remember last week, or a couple weeks ago, when we did the introductory message, Vashti accompanied, the next year, Vashti accompanied Ahasuerus to Greece, and Vashti was there with Ahasuerus, Xerxes, at the Battle of Salamis. I mean, she wasn't on the battlefield. She, I guess, stayed back in the tent, whatever, but she was there. And history records her being there after she was dethroned. But even in all that, she wasn't de-wifed. She still remained in the harem of Ahasuerus. And so this advisor says that what Vashti has done is going to get out. Other women of the kingdom, they're going to start disobeying their husbands too. We can't let this be. We've got to put a stop to this. We have to make an edict. We have to have another law of the Medes and the Persians. And so we read that edict, look at verse 20. And when the king's decree which he shall make shall be published throughout all his empire, or it is a great empire, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor both great and small. That's part of the edict. Wives have to obey their husbands. Verse 21, the saying pleased the king, princes, and the king did according to the word of Mamukin. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, wrote it in all the languages of all the different provinces, to every people after their writing, that every man should bear rule in his own house. And that was the edict. Wives, obey your husbands, and husbands, you're the leader of your house. That was their edict. Now, here's the irony. Here's the satire. Here's what's so hilarious. Is that the king made this edict, sent out to 127 provinces, to make a law for the whole kingdom that he wasn't even able to enforce in his own house. And that's what's so hilarious. There's the irony of this man that supposedly is the most powerful man in the world. Really has no power at all. He can't do anything. 
He's a puppet. He's weak. And so from a literary perspective, this first chapter shows us the utter foolishness of earthly power. It's just foolish. It really, it really is just a bunch of smoke and mirrors. It comes across as so great. It comes across as this machine that would just roll over anything in its path. But it's just weak at its core. It really doesn't have the strength that it thought it had. And you can imagine an original Jewish writer, or I'm sorry, an original Jewish reader who may not in his life had been privy to all the details of what was going on in chapter 1, reading of this, and oh yeah, Hashuarius, wow, he's awesome. Really? That's what we were afraid of? That's the big deal that got us all anxious and worried? He's nothing. It's laughable. And his earthly power not the same. What real power does it have? And we can go back to that list of things that, you know, you might worry about. What real power does it have in light of eternity? What real effect, what effect can it have on your soul? And the answer is, it can't have any effect on its soul. It might seem so big, but at the end of the day, it's just so small. It's just weak. What can any of those do to us that our God can't overcome? How about that question? What can any of those things do to us? What, What can earthly power present that our God can't overcome? And so I want to leave you with one final point. And for this final point, we kind of back out of Esther. But I want you to see finally here that God's power is a great blessing. Earthly power puts on a big show. Earthly power, though, is really just weak at its core. But God's power is a great blessing to his people. God's power stands in stark contrast to the power of this world. You see, this world puts on a big show, but it's really just smoke and mirrors. This power comes across as being very strong, but in reality it's very weak. But yet God's power is neither a fake show, nor is it weak. The book of Esther begins with this great feast, 180-day feast. And it's a feast to display the great power of the most powerful man in the world. But your Bible also ends with a great feast. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 19. Look at Revelation 19. The Bible speaks to us of another feast. I don't normally read this lengthy of passage in the middle of a message, but it's worthy of our attention. Look at Revelation 19, verse 1. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, 
and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See that thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren. They have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon the white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Here is a celebration feast prepared for you, the likes of which no one has ever seen. What Ahasuerus has put together was the likes of which no one has ever seen. But this marriage supper of the Lamb, God's display of power, is the likes of which no man has ever seen. God's power is a great blessing. It's a great blessing because God never humiliates his bride. In this drunken feast, Ahasuerus called Vashti into his court in a way that would have humiliated her. It was a way that was indecent. It was a way that was inappropriate. But look at verse 8 here in Revelation 19. And her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. We stand before God not in our own nakedness and shame, but clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. No flaws are exposed or put on display, but instead we are made to be spotless, and clean 
in his presence and in the presence of, of all to see. God's power is a great blessing also because God does not deal with us according to the foolish counsel of an unwise servant. He deals with us according to truth and justice. It's the exact opposite of the capricious and weak and puppet string nature of King Ahasuerus. Instead, God deals with us in faithfulness and in truth. That's what he's called. Those are titles given to him in verse number 11. He is faithful and true. Everything God does is for his own glory and for the best interest of his people. He makes war in righteousness, we're told in this passage. Ahasuerus made war in arrogance and greed and vengefulness and pride to be great in his own name. God doesn't deal with us in pride or in arrogance. God's not a tyrant. God never demeans or humiliates us. God deals with us in grace and in mercy. So the book of Esther, really, we go back to Esther. The book of Esther is a book that shines a spotlight on the all-encompassing power and providence of the God that we serve. And as I mentioned before in the introduction today and several times in the message before, though you, or though I, at times might not be mindful of God or might not be mindful of him the way we ought to be, God is always mindful of us. God always cares for us. God always oversees all of our affairs for his glory and for our good. And he's coordinating every circumstance for that benefit. And so from that, we come to the conclusion that there's nothing we need to fear. There's nothing that needs to keep us anxious. There's nothing that needs to keep us worried and awake at night because God is in control of all things. We will see as we continue on through this book of Esther, Haman comes on the scene, and he's a bad dude. He's a bad man. He has wicked intentions. But yet God deals with Haman in just the perfect way. And there's not a Jew killed because of Haman. Haman wanted the entire nation destroyed. But there's not one killed at the hand of Haman, at least recorded in Esther. And God deals with Haman off the scene, done. God deals with Ahasuerus. That night, the, the crescendo of the entire book, that night of all nights, the king couldn't sleep. And of all the things he chose to do, he called a guy to come in and read a history book. And God in his providence had that exact page with that exact event of Mordecai uncovering a plot to kill the king and what's been done. And we see God in all of it. God's not mentioned, but yet God is obviously the actor. God is obviously the one doing the thing that needs to be done. And so we find ourselves worried about all sorts of things. Right? Are you without something that you think you need? 
God can provide that thing you need. Are you fearful of something happening? Something happening to yourself, something happening to your children, something happening to your family? God can protect them. God is able. Are you scared of what the future holds? God will show you when it's time. Are you uncertain about a decision you need to make? God will reveal it in its time. You trust the Lord, you follow him, lean not on your own understandings. Acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. Earthly power would have you lean on your own understanding. Yet when we realize the weakness of it, then there's no need for us to quake in fear of it. Instead, we can turn and we can trust the Lord. And Esther teaches us to trust the Lord to bring to pass all that we need for his glory and for our good. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, as we finish our time this morning, we do confess to you our own weakness and the irony is that this earthly power has so infiltrated and afflicted our own hearts that too often we see ourselves as the powerful force able to do what we need done but we pray that you would show us our own weakness and We pray that you would help us to get out of the way of ourselves and to look to you to help us, to lead us, to guide us. Pray that you would increase our faith. We pray that you bless us, Lord's Day. Bring us back again this evening to consider your word afresh. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.